Iconic wrestling coach Dan Gable once said, Pain is nothing compared to what it feels like to quit. Give everything you've got today, for tomorrow may never come. Gable could be describing those whose achievements have earned them the honor of being inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. Etched in Stone, the stories of wrestling's legends will take you inside the lives of over 200 of the greatest wrestlers in history as they share their never-before-told stories about their trials, tribulations, and triumphs. Competitors, coaches, teammates, and those who knew these athletes best will also weigh in on their accomplishments with their own unique perspectives. Welcome to the show, folks. You're listening to The Smiths on the Etched in Stone series. My name is Ryan Warner. I'll be your host. So let's get started. As John began his sophomore season, he was ready to make a run at his first NCAA title. He would be doing so under a new head coach. Oklahoma State, coached by Joe C., graduate of Kansas State University, class of 1963. And John had a little bit of red ass, I think, for Joe C., because he had wrestled for such a structured coach, and then Joe C. from California comes in, loosey-goosey, and, and John just didn't respect Joe. Joe C. was an outsider. He was hired from Cal State Bakersfield, and on his first day of practice, he brought a number of Division II transfers with him. One of those transfers started talking trash to John Smith. And this guy was a young stud that thought, you know, I'm going to, you know, John Smith this, John, whatever, I'm going to. So John one day said, come on, big boy, we're going we're gonna to wrestle. John was having his way, but this guy caught him or something, and, and John was so mad about it, he got up, took this guy down, a kid from California was at his same weight, and basically just popped him in the, in the eye, cut his eye. And I thought, are you kidding me? It's almost like I'm the 136-pounder here. Don't ever, ever think you're going to even make this team. You might as well go back to where you came from. John Smith. John Smith. John Smith. Probably the greatest wrestler we've ever had in the United States. He took it down. I see a bundle of intensity. I find a way to win. Seems incredible that a family can do that well. Three NCAA champions, the only family to ever do that. It just seems one brother after the other tries to outdo the one before him. A big win for young Pat Smith. Pat Smith, the number one seed and defending champ from Oklahoma State. It was, you know, a wrestling life. Welcome back. You're listening to episode two of The Smiths. This episode covers one of the most important years of John's life, the redshirt year. Now, before that all started, he moved out of the dorms and into a house with his teammate, Corey Bays. I guess I was a clean freak because I, I wanted to, you know, I was really proud of the house. You know, I wanted to keep it nice. But John, you know, getting in his world a little bit, he comes for such a big family that he's had to fight for everything, food, anything, with such a big family. He kept everything clean, but behind closed his room door, it was like a tornado, and I would just keep his door closed so I wouldn't have to, to worry about it or even look at it. That was, that was, his, that was his deal, and it, it worked. Before the season got started, John and Corey had a few nights out in the town. John would always wear the Wranglers. I mean, he looked like Clint Eastwood and when he deck, you know, got all decked out and would go, go out, and he would have a few Bud Lights and... But he carried himself in a way that you just, everybody kind of wanted to be like John. Because here's this skinny-ass kid 
He doesn't, he doesn't look like an athlete. But really underneath, he's a, he's a guy that just is humble as can be, but he will rip your freaking head off if you challenge him. But it wasn't, you know, one of those animal house type deals. It was it was pretty pretty serious after mid-October. We pretty much shut everything down until, you know, really after the season. During John's sophomore year, he won the Big 8s, put together a 28-1 record, and made it all the way to the NCAA Finals. When he was a sophomore, he got beat pretty soundly in the finals by Jim Jordan, who was much old, several years older and very physical, but he was a real solid wrestler. Now when we say Jim Jordan, we're talking about the same Jim Jordan that you see on the news every night. Congressman Jim Jordan, he's the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee. And- see, back in the 80s, he was a beast wrestler and laid a thumping on our man John Smith. A lot of things happened after Jim Jordan beat me in the NCAA Finals. And, and that's probably more so than anything. That, that match, you know, you've heard me say it over and over again, you know, um, I couldn't have beat him that day. I probably couldn't have beat him. I couldn't have beat him a month from that day. You know, we have a tendency to say, oh, I could have won that match. Well, I couldn't have won it. I wasn't going to win it, and I wasn't going to win it a month from now, and wasn't going to win it six months later. Uh, he beat, he, he he beat me up, and and um, uh, I had every intentions of winning that match, and he he never gave me a chance. I interviewed John after that. I still remember him. Just uh, yeah, he was uh, devastated because he you know he he can't believe he he lost and all of that, but uh, basically you could just tell the resolve in him was. I mean, they're like, this is not going to happen to me again. I mean, you could just feel it. That's Rex Holt, the voice of cowboy wrestling. Yeah, the, the, the great ones are that way. They lose a match and, and they get better from it. I wouldn't be surprised to say that that was the match that turned him into the beast he became. In the weeks after John's loss to Jordan, his mind began to drift. He had been in college for two full years and had yet to win an NCAA title. A little bit of me was really concerned that I wasn't good enough. Um, I just felt like I was, I was overmatched. I was outmatched. John needed time to get better, and so he thought about using his red shirt. You know, Coach C didn't want me to red shirt. But I really felt like there was a level of maturity that, that I needed, you know. Um, and maybe a little bit nervous that it was all going too fast. You know, I wrestled as a true freshman. I wrestled my sophomore year. You know, and a little bit of, uh, it's going too fast. I'm about done here, you know. And I wasn't, you know, I I, thought, let's pu- I need to pull back a little bit. And, you know, uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm ready to go win a national championship going into my junior year, you know. I, I probably wasn't. John took the red shirt and would now be sitting out his junior year. And I think that that's really where he made the decision um, that, that okay, I'm, I'm really going to be serious about this now. That's Lisa Little. She worked at the Oklahoma State Sports Office. But I think he also realized that he had the potential to, to really do something special at that point. So what was your goal going into the redshirt year? Make an Olympic team. Yeah, make a world team, actually. If you make the world team... You get to represent the United States at the biggest tournaments around the globe. And that year, there was a new event that had everyone's attention. 
the sporting event of the decade, the Goodwill Games. In July of 1986, the world's finest athletes will unite in Moscow to determine who is the best in track. You've probably never heard of them, but the Goodwill Games were a Ted Turner creation designed to compete with the Olympics. They featured all the big amateur sports, including wrestling. John wanted to be there and had 10 months to make Team USA. He got to work. He was more focused than I've ever seen anybody else that I've ever been around. That's Jim Shields again. But he, he was fanatic. He'd get guys to come in and work out with him in the morning. He'd work out at our practice. He'd have guys come in to work out with him in the evenings at 7, 7.30 or 8. Talking to him yesterday, he said, wrestling is my life. I work out three times a day when I'm in serious competition. I don't have time for anything else. There was never a day off. There was no rest. It was focus, focus, focus. Jerry Hickman was John's best friend and workout partner. If you weren't there for the same goal as he was, there's no use for you. you got to go. That wasn't much of a social life. It was, it was wrestling on the mind 24-7. At any given period, the drop of a hat, you never know when it was going to be. Let's saddle up. We're going to the gym. John's favorite time to work out was 11 p.m. And it was there, during a late-night drill with Jerry, where he invented a wrestling takedown that would change the sport as much as the forward pass revolutionized football. His creation was called the low single leg. When we talk about a low single leg, we're talking about penetrating from the knee on down. Okay, We do not want to attack from the knee on up. All right? Well, we're, we're dealing with too much power up here. And he would try to get down so low and literally just almost like a laser beam attack your ankle. We're talking about being close to the ground, being able to penetrate as low as you can to the ground, but also staying in a good position. John was so obsessed with the low single that he lost track of time and would go months without calling his parents. When you have that kind of energy, it's amazing where you can go. Because when you have that energy and you, you're feeling something that's really working and all of a sudden you're, you're snappy with it, you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're asking your partners, try to keep me off your ankle. Don't, don't, that's all I want you to do, you know, and you're still getting into it. You know, um, it's just a level of motivation that I don't think everybody hits that, you know, unfortunately. I don't think, I think only a few people do. I think it's just, it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a chemistry that's brought on from work um, and just passion uh, of you know, wanting to do something so bad, you know, and through that, through that experience, you can find things. Things will evolve, you know, and what evolved from that experience is a, is a, a low single leg that, that I dominated with. You can see Smith's style there is very, very low singles. He's so quick, he can get in deep. And Smith's single leg quickly scores the first point of the match. He gets so low. He gets so low. What John has basically done is develop an unorthodox style unique to his skills, emphasizing speed and flexibility. And there's that single once again. You know it's coming, but John has that ability to get you off balance and with his speed get in there before you can do anything about it. He looks back on this period as one of the most exciting times of his life. Because getting better, there's nothing better than getting I mean, feel, the feel of getting better, there's nothing. Nothing that, in my career, that I, it really equaled to it. You know, that was the best. In January of 86, 
John was set to travel to the Soviet Union for his first big international tournament. But before he left, he tested his new invention against his older brother, Leroy. We're wrestling in a workout room in the basement. He's starting to master the low single. Now, he couldn't take me down. Uh, hardly. Uh, up to oh, boy. That point. But then he started mastering that low single. And I couldn't stop it. And he was all of a sudden on top of me, and I didn't want him on top of me. But then he did. And then he, he started trying to get rough with me. I'll never forget, you know, giving me elbows and trying to, you know, work my head over. and Giving it back to me. <laughs> yeah, I did try to give it back to him. And uh, I'll never forget saying, okay, it's about time for my career. I'm out of here. You know, I'm, you're, you're where, John, I feel good about where you're at now. I remember the day I took him down. I know what he's talking about. Um, yeah, it was exciting. Um, and I could have took him down 15 times. I was better than him. I passed him that day. You know, I really did. You know, and, and he's right. He's right when he says uh, I was going to his head. You know, I was giving him back some shit that that he was giving me his whole life. You know, and that was good feeling. But it's a good feeling when you know. You know, you have. You know, you're, you're one of your mentors growing up, and you know, and you're passing him. Later that night, John packed his bags and boarded an 18-hour flight to the Soviet Union, the home of the best wrestlers on the planet. They have dominated international wrestling for a number of years. You don't see them lose too often. For over 20 years, they've been the team that wins the world championships. The, the Soviets and the, at the time, and the Russians, Soviets at the time, motivated all of us because you're going to need to beat one of them somewhere. Down the, down the road if you're ever going to win something. When John arrived in the Soviet Union, he was doing so to wrestle in the toughest tournament in the world, the Tbilisi tournament. A win here was an early indicator for who had a shot at gold at the Goodwill Games later that year. I'll never forget that Tbilisi tournament and how cold it was in that gym. I'm like, this is a joke, you know, and everybody's complaining, and, and, I, and I was one of them with it, and, and when I walked out of there, I'm like, that's why you lost. You're complaining. You're worried about how cold it is. After failing to place at the tournament, John boarded a train that would take him through the heart of the Soviet Union and back to Moscow. It was a train ride. You know, I remember going and, uh, you know, I, th- I just think things go through your mind like, you know, you, you talk about wanting to be an Olympian. You're, somebody needs to tell me something. You know, how am I going to do this? I want to do it, you know. Um, well, nobody can tell you how to do that. You know, that's going to have to come from within. As John passed through the Caucasus Mountains, he continued to reflect. My biggest impression, you know, I think was how are you ever going to be as good as some of these guys and you have no, you have absolutely no idea how they're living. And I saw the way they lived. And I'm like, these dudes are tough, tough. I don't know what tough is. You know, and I'm not tough on the mat, tough of how they lived. I mean, I saw some places that just like, my goodness, how are you going to beat these guys? You know, and it was kind of a a 
lonely ride, you know. It's just like, you know, you might beat some of them, but my gosh, how are you going to beat their better ones? I mean, these guys are living tough. You know, but I, I never let go of that hope, you know, and I just kind of, those, those moments in time, I think they build up in you and through your work habits and through your training, you don't let those things disappear. That image never left me the whole time. Like, don't ever underestimate what you're getting ready to hit. These dudes are tough, you know, and what they get if they win, maybe not much to me, but it's everything to them and their families and respect that. When John got back to Stillwater, he added an extra workout to his daily regimen. I just think you got to create some things around yourself, you know, that that gives you that mental edge. And for me, you know, something I did for, for over five years is, is I'd set my alarm at, at two o'clock in the morning and I'd run stadiums um, three, four nights a week. Just to strengthen my mind, I was thinking, you know, while the Russians are sleeping, I'm working. All I can remember is that whether I was running stairs or, or going through stance of motion, it was that extra time alone, quiet, nobody else is doing anything. I don't know, it, it, it just helps you feel like you deserve something. Throughout that spring and summer, John continued to perfect a low single, and against all odds, qualified for the world team. John will carry Oklahoma's banner to the Goodwill Games in Moscow this July. Before he left for Russia, a news crew came to his house to do an interview. Right now, I feel like I can compete with anyone in the United States at 136 and a half. But could John beat a Soviet? That was the big question heading into the games. Turner Network Television proudly presents, for the first time ever, the 1986 Goodwill Games from Moscow. In the sweltering heat of July 1986, Oklahomans from across the state tuned in to watch their favorite son, John W. Smith, try and take out the evil empire. The Soviet Union has been unbelievable. They have not lost a single match in competition here. Not a single match. They've won 29 matches in a row and have yet to lose here in the Goodwill Games. To the surprise of the U.S. team, John qualified for the finals where a Soviet awaited. His longtime friend Jerry Hickman was not going to miss this match. I remember the, the, the final. I set an alarm. I figured out when it was going to come on on the pay-per-view and I want to say it was two or three in the morning in Oklahoma got up and flicked it on and a few minutes later here it goes it's the finals I understand the John Smith match is ready right now let's go right back to Drew's bar Russ thanks Bob you're looking at and if you were Jerry Hickman that night or any one of the Oklahomans watching this match you'd have noticed that John's coach was Dan Gable there's coach Dan Gable of the United States when I saw the Goodwill Games final match, it's one of maybe three matches in my career that I've coached that when the match was over, that the opponent couldn't walk off the mat. 
Nice single leg attack there by John Smith, and he scores the first point for that takedown. An upset in the making here, John Smith of the United States. Asayev had the weight of the world on his shoulders. 9,000 Soviet fans were there, and they all wanted to see the American go down. Asayev of the Soviet Union spins around behind, no control yet. A nice scramble there by John Smith, the United States. They go off the mat. I know. I remember it was a tight, tough match. Particularly John Smith here at 136. In on a single leg again, takes him down. There it is. Regains that lead, two to one. Less than a minute remaining. But I only remember Asayev after the match and how exhausted he was. Time running out. There it is. There it is. Great. Great. First loss for the Soviet Union in 32 matches. John Smith of the United States wins the gold medal in one. To me, when you win those matches that they can't even walk off or if they crawl off and they just lay there forever, I love that. Jerry Hickman was still watching from home. It was now 2.45 a.m. Oklahoma time. As the buzzer went off, John jumped up and in a very satisfying fist pump, and it was truly a thrill of victory and an agony of defeat moment. And, and, and John's face tells the story of, I'm here, and nobody's stopping me from here ever. What, what I experienced from winning that tournament, uh, and then listening to, um, listening to Coach Gable's remarks and listening to some of my teammates' remarks really fired me up. Like saying, hey, you're good. You know, and you hear that from Coach Gable. You know, it just, okay, I'm here. But I knew that that John Smith was a different guy from then on. Just a year prior, John was debating whether or not he should even take a red shirt. You don't know what's going to make you. But, you know, he did the right thing. He took a year off, went on that trip, got some confidence. John's younger brother, Pat, could hardly believe how much he had changed in just a year. You go watch John wrestle in the NCAA tournament um, as, a, as a freshman, as a sophomore. You go watch him wrestle against Jim Jordan in the NCAA finals. Well, then you take John Smith after his redshirt year. Well, those are two different wrestlers in two different styles. And this one over here, okay, that's wrestling after his redshirt year, is slick, fast, and unstoppable. After John returned from Moscow, he faced a choice. Forgo the rest of college and head straight for the world championships or turn in the red, white, and blue for the cowboy orange and black and pursue his first NCAA title. You know, I skipped the world championships that year, you know, and, um, and, and I, the, really the, the main reason is I didn't want to go out of order. You know, I just felt like I'm not ready to be a world champion because really winning an NCAA championship was way more important to me. Why is that? Oh, I just, I just felt like I'm going to get this opportunity in my career, you know, if, if I build myself into that person, right? Um, I only get four years at this. You know, and, and winning an NCAA championship, listen, it is important. John returned to the Oklahoma State lineup 
as the number one wrestler in the country at his weight class. His roommate, Corey Bays, was now the starter for the Cowboys at 118. For him to be on such a cloud nine, beating the Russian at the Goodwill Games, um, and coming back really at the start of the season, he was, wouldn't say he was out of shape, but he wasn't in collegiate shape. See, the thing about wrestling is, if you take the mat at anything less than 100% tip-top shape, you're doing so at your own peril. And it came back to bite John. He lost his first college match of the season to Nebraska's Gil Sanchez. You know, everybody, it got everybody's attention. Oh, Gil Sanchez just beat John Smith, the the Goodwill game. I mean, it it embarrassed him. I was embarrassed. And, and, And that was the wrong thing to feel. Later that night, Corey found John. I remember sitting in a hotel room with John after Sanchez had beat him. And... He was literally writing uh, on a notepad. He said, "He said, Corey, I'm never going to let that happen ever again. He said, from this day forward, I'm going to, I'm not going to win a match by one or two points. I'm going to dominate. You know, I'm glad I heard that. You know, I mean, Corey and I were, you know, I, you, know you, you don't talk about it that those times very often, you know, and. Um, but what I did learn about that was don't ever not give people respect. Rather than return to Stillwater with the rest of the team, John and Jerry rented a van and hunted down Gil Sanchez. They found him at the Omaha Open. I was chasing him. You know, I've got, I, have to, I have to regain my spirit. I mean, I went over there motivated, highly motivated, like this is not happening. This is bullshit, you know. Get your ass ready to go. And, and, and this dude punched me back over there in Omaha. And when I walked off that mat, it took everything I had to beat him. In the rematch, John beat Gill by the slimmest of margins. But the whole experience of going to Russell and Gill again uh, two days later and fighting my ass off to win by two points. Um, Listen, that's arrogant. You know, I looked at myself as arrogant, like I didn't give this guy the respect he deserves. This guy is as good as anyone I've ever wrestled anywhere. You know, and when you wrestle him again, it's going to be tougher now. This guy's got, got game. He wants to win a national title. What part of that you don't get, you know? And, and, and that's coming back from Omaha, you know, and, and, and following that tournament. That's what I that's that's what I reminded myself is this guy's got game. You know, I walked away from there like there was fear. You know, like hey, you don't get your, your don't get yourself together and get focused on the right things. You may not win another. You may not win a national championship. After John's early season battles with Gill, he shook off the cobwebs and put together a 39-1 record. He'd meet Gill two more times, the last of which coming in the NCAA Finals, where John won 18-4, finally bringing home that NCAA trophy. For his efforts, he was voted the outstanding wrestler of the tournament. Now the only question was, 
could he parlay the success from his redshirt year into a spot in the 1988 Olympics? Hey guys, if you want to help us spread the word, please rate the episode and share it with your friends. The Smiths was written and directed by Ryan Warner. Executive producers include USA Wrestling and the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. A special thank you to the entire Smith family, Rich Bender and Leroy Smith. Etched in Stone is an exclusive production of the National Wrestling Hall of Fame and USA Wrestling. Download your free souvenir book of any of the Etched in Stone stories produced at nwhof.org. The storybook includes the written story and is filled with pictures and videos of their live matches. And while you're on the website, take a deeper dive into the profiles of the 179 distinguished members inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame.